Welcome to another episode of the Let People Prosper Show. I'm Dr. Vance Ginn, and I'm here with a couple of three of my great friends who are also happy warriors in the fight for liberty, prosperity, and, and freedom overall um, across the country. And they've just done so much good work, um, had them on on different episodes already, but I thought, you know what, with so much going on in the economy and so much going on across the states, and a lot of the states have finished their session this year, let's bring them back on uh, because I think there's a lot that legislative members, their staff, even the public should know about what's going on and how, how things are heading. And, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the future of our country right now. I mean, consumer consumer sentiment by the University of Michigan is down to 50, uh, one of the lowest here here recently. You see Biden's approval rate ranking is below 40. (laughs) So those things are going together. At the same time, we have the highest inflation rate in 40 years. Um, And even today, as we're doing this recording on June 15th, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by 75 basis points. The, the, the most aggressive increase they've done since 1994. So it's been a while since we've seen this. And we're still at you know 1.5 to 1.75%. That range is the federal funds rate, that overnight lending rate between banks. But that influences state budgets, pensions, the stock market, um, general revenue moving forward. Uh, it's going to influence a lot of things throughout the economy and throughout each one of the states. And so I think this is it's a pivotal time for us to have a frank conversation about the future of, of our country and the future of our state. So these are going to be three great people. So let me introduce them. First, my good friend Jonathan Williams, who is the Executive Vice President of Policy and Chief Economist at ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Thank you for being on, Jonathan. Next, we have Patrick Gleason. Patrick Gleason is the Vice President of State Affairs at ATR, Americans for Tax Reform. Um, thank you, Patrick, for being on the, on the show today. And the last, but certainly not least, we have Michael Lucci, who is the senior policy advisor for SPN, uh, the State Policy Network. So we've got a lot to lot to discuss today. We're trying to pack it all in in a quick amount of time because I know everybody's time is uh, money, right? Uh, time is money. So we have a high opportunity cost. So let's get straight to it, Jonathan. What What do you say? What, what do you say? What's going on in the economy and and things happening across the across the nation? Because I, I want to really hear what's on your mind. Well, thanks for doing this, Vance. Again, because this is a really important conversation to have right now. Um, you know, let's let's face it. I mean, uh, look, we're facing really serious times right now at the at the economy level, at the federal level. Certainly, states are beholden to the federal economy in, in so many different ways. Does that affect just trickles into the state and local uh, level? But I mean, looking at what the Federal Reserve actions were like is a, you know, a really legitimate response to an out of control federal policy agenda that's now really spun out of control for a year and a half. We've seen a such an uptick in federal spending and debt, uh, as well as just a, a horrible attack on American energy. And uh, you add all of those inflationary policies together, and surprise, surprise, it's not rocket surgery, as, uh, as my co-author Art Laffer likes to say. This is how you get inflation. And uh, you know, we see that top line number. You, see, you talked about some of the top line statistics. Even the other one that I follow pretty closely is our friends at NFIB with their small business optimism index is you know hitting all-time lows as well. You start to see now a hiring freeze or layoff trend begin with the private sector entities out there in many uh, sectors of the economy. And this is building into a perfect storm for a really tough time ahead for the American economy and more importantly for hardworking taxpayers. And so I think you know at this point, you know, how do we unpack from trillions and trillions of dollars of mistakes over the course of the last couple of years, as well as uh, now a 
Federal Reserve that is looking to really, by definition, slow down the economy uh, because it's overheating with the inflation driven by a big government agenda and restriction of the supply side. So there's a couple of ways to do it. And the painful way, which is exactly what's happening right now in front of us with the Federal Reserve action, I don't have to explain all the pain points there. One of the big things, though, that I'm starting to see is in certain real estate markets across the country, really a downturn in prices. Obviously, that's going to impact so many different areas. And that by itself could lead us into a downturn in GDP with a huge correction in real estate that had been obviously on a huge uptick for a number of years now. Um, and then, you know, there's the other way of handling this. I don't think has gotten nearly as much attention at the federal level because of the Biden administration uh, nearly having a as the Wall Street Journal editorial board uh, recently put it, a George Catanza type approach to uh, government, which is everything you should be doing, you do the exact opposite. And so well, that's exactly what we're seeing. And if anything, you know, now we're seeing you know more proposals to double down on spending, restrict the supply, continuing to demonize the energy industry or individual companies, as we've seen in recent days. But what I think what was missing from this debate, clearly at the federal level, is the supply side solutions that could get us out of this problem. Problem and really avoid not only inflation, but the bigger problem of stagflation, something we haven't seen since the Jimmy Carter era. And it, this is a real threat now as we you know, may escape the second quarter being a negative number with GDP, but then certainly a huge threat for the third and fourth quarter, adding with this inflation. Um, how do you fix that? You know, you go to back to basic supply side effects and you, know, you stop the restriction of American affordable and reliable energy. You've got to reverse the ideas of you know, day one, it was shut down pipelines stop new uh, oil and gas uh, development on federal lands. If I were a Republican Congress and majority and I had gavels, you know, immediately I'd be thinking about uh, those ideas and, you know, whether the president vetoes them or not. Then, of course, it's once again on him uh, for some of the supply side restrictions. And then also, let's not forget, um, uh, you know, thank God for Joe Manchin, first of all, and Kristen Sinema and some others that added bipartisan opposition to some of the economically crippling tax hikes that we would have seen otherwise uh, with the Biden agenda. We would have been in a recession much, much faster, much deeper of a recession session, I think, if they would have had their way with the so-called Build Back Better agenda. Um, now, outside of that, though, um, let's not forget that just in a few short years, the entire individual side of the Trump tax cuts, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, um, phases out because of those arcane Senate rules that are passed with any kind of major tax legislation that's a net tax cut. And so that's something I know as we think through, let's avoid this discussion and hanging that over our heads of massive future tax tax increases on individuals, small businesses, the AMT coming back to terrorize really mid-income uh, American families, as well as unlimited SALT deduction, uh, which, of course, is the subsidy to high-tax states that we fought so much as as an organization. All of our organizations were very instrumental in that approach. Uh, to cap that SALT deduction. So I think those are a few things on the, the national level that we've been thinking through. And then as we talk to state legislators uh, often, I mean, the dynamic at the state level is obviously it's been a historic year uh, or a couple of years for tax cuts and really pro-growth, dramatically moving the ball forward in many cases. I mean, we've had a flat tax revolution happen in the 50 states, uh, and namely the four states that became new flat tax states this year 
And it took about 110 years to get our first four states that went from progressive graduated income taxes down to flat taxes, and most recently in North Carolina and in, in Utah in the last decade, a decade and a half. In a, about a 10-week period during this session, we saw four new states join the flat tax club, starting with Iowa. Then, we, of course, we had uh, Mississippi, Georgia, and Arizona by court action. And so states, I think, in many ways, I mean, first of all, they're really still sloshing around with federal cash right now, as well as some of the natural growth that we've seen with the run-up in the economy, when they, especially the states that wisely reopened their economies early on. Um, they've been aggressively using that in the right way. And But you talk to legislators, and I think that in a way, they're doing that to offset so many of the bad things coming from Washington, D.C., but also to avoid the problem that I know all of us worry about is if we don't cut taxes and if we don't give this surplus money back to taxpayers and put it back into the private sector, what's the alternative? And I think we all know what the alternative is, is those that want bigger government are going to spend all that money if it's left in state capitals. And so that's been a great response from the states. And while it might be doom and gloom and gridlock at the, Washington, at the federal level here in Washington, D.C., I think the states are pursuing with this regulatory relief, occupational licensing, telehealth reforms, tax cuts. They're doing the exact thing that we should be doing on the federal level to make this, you know, this problem that we're facing much less painful to come out of it by focusing on real free market supply side solutions and not just what we know is going to be coming from the Federal Reserve. So I'll, I'll stop there, Vance. There's a lot going on, obviously, and happy to continue to engage as we go here. Well, I, I love it. You're really hitting on some of the key things that need to be done here that Pro-growth approach is, is so important. And how, how many years had it been from the first four to now? It's about 110 years that states have been taxing income, wow. uh, with Wisconsin really being the first state that was a state at the time that enacted an income tax. I think it was uh, 1911. So yeah. about 110 years, four states went from progressive systems to flat taxes. And then another 10 weeks is all it took with the right people, with the right ideas, the leadership, and really the pushback against the big government agenda. And once again, showing that states can and, and do lead the way. Yep, yep. And we need more of that. In our system of federalism, it's so important to have that laboratory of competition uh, really going on. So, so that's good. Um, I turn it over to you now, Patrick. Uh, what's been on your mind and uh, what have you been working on? Because I know you, you also keep your thumb right on what everybody's doing across the across the country in a, in a good way where you're trying to relieve remove um, government where where there's too many barriers so um, what's in your mind Patrick yeah uh, thanks fans for having me uh, to build on a couple of things that Jonathan mentioned so yeah we are in a flat tax revolution we're also just in generally in a state tax cut uh, revolution this has been going on for a number of years but it's really picked up pace in the last two years you know, so 2021, we saw 14 states had state income tax relief enacted. You know, that has certainly helped um, households deal with the top issue of the day, which you talked about, inflation. Highest inflation rate in over four decades with 8.6 percent hitting that in May. So in the most basic way, by allowing households and taxpayers to hang on to a larger share of their paycheck, the 14 state income tax cuts passed last year have helped taxpayers deal with this inflation. This year, we've seen states uh, build upon that success. We've had, as we get close to the halfway point of 2022, we've had eight states enact income tax relief so far this year. And we're not done. I don't know if we'll get to 14, but I think it's like we'll get to double digits because today alone, uh, South Carolina House gave final approval to an income tax cut deal that came out of conference committee. The state Senate there is about to pass it if they haven't already passed it already. And then it'll be on to Governor McMaster's desk. So that should be the ninth income tax cut of the year. And then uh, Oklahoma is now in special session called by Governor Stitt to address income tax relief there. So, 
you know, I would say beyond, though, this straight up standard income tax cuts that allow people to deal with inflation in the most basic way. There are some other things that state lawmakers can do and have been looking to do to help their constituents deal with this sky high inflation. A lot of the solutions, obviously, are going to need to come at the federal level, but there are things that state lawmakers can do. One thing I want to draw uh, folks' attention to uh, is the 13 states that have graduated income tax uh, structures that are not um, indexed to inflation. Of the graduated uh, income tax states, most of them have indexed for inflation, but 13 have not. Um, so in those 13 states, you know, a, a simple thing that lawmakers could do in those states would be to index their brackets for inflation. That will protect against bracket creep. Bracket creep refers to when inflationary wage gains, but not real wage gains, push a taxpayer into a higher bracket and a higher rate. Um, so they're paying a higher tax rate, although they have not experienced any increase in, in real wages. So say an, an employer increases an employee's wage in line with inflation, that uh, that raise bumps them into a higher bracket. Now, they haven't had any real wage increase, no increase in purchasing power, but they're now paying a higher income tax rate. That's bracket creep. So in indexing protects against bracket creep. So we've got 13 states with graduate income taxes that need to index in order to protect their constituents against bracket creep, which is unlegislated tax hikes is what it effectively is, bracket creep. So Virginia, you know, Governor Glenn Youngkin, he's uh, passed multiple billions of dollars in, in tax relief this year. He's getting ready to enact. Uh, that could be a great uh, next step next year would be indexing uh, his state's income tax brackets uh, for inflation. Oklahoma, who I mentioned is in special session, they're one of the 13 that does not index uh, their tax brackets for inflation. So that's something we're encouraging them to look at. But another way that they could address the, the problem of bracket creep without indexing for inflation is to do one of two things, either to move just to a flat tax, as many states for a loan this year have done, uh, or they can get rid of their income tax, in which it's not an issue. Um, two of the 13 states that do not index their tax brackets to inflation have taken that action in moving to a flat tax this year. So Mississippi and Georgia are two of those 13 states with graduated, graduated income tax structures right now that are not indexed to inflation. So they're moving to flat taxes this year, uh, thanks to legislation signed by Governor Brian Kemp and Tate Reeves. So now uh, indexing will obviously not be a matter there. So that's certainly something you can do. Uh, and we're encouraging uh, states to look at that as well. So either index or move to flat or get rid of it. And, you know, I mentioned South Carolina. They're going to uh, cut their rate, their top rate from seven to six. I mentioned great first step, but they're still going to have the highest income tax rate in the entire southeast after this. Good news is a number of key legislators there have already acknowledged that this should just be a first step and that more needs to be done in subsequent sessions. So, you know, we're encouraging them to look at further rate reduction, maybe getting it down to the, the flat 3% rate that pass through businesses uh, pay income tax in South Carolina. That seems like a good rate to get all personal income tax um, uh, uh, payments down to. Um, but so that's something they could do. They could also index, but getting down to a flat rate of 3% or other or five or other would also address that. So we're encouraging folks in South Carolina to do that. And South Carolina is one of um, 10 states with a graduated income tax where the top rate kicks in below $20,000. So these are states that almost effectively have flat taxes because almost everybody is paying the top rate. South Carolina, just over 16000 for both joint and single filers are paying. That's almost everyone's already paying the top 7% rate. You know, you might as well just knock out other rates, get down to a single rate since that's almost what you have. Um, so I think we'll see more of that. Um, and that's what we're encouraging. So yeah, the good news is we've seen the basic uh, income tax rate relief uh, trend continue, which allows people to uh, deal with inflation just by keeping more of their income. We're seeing some states look at indexing. We've seen two proposals uh, in Connecticut and New Jersey. Hopefully those can move. Uh, but like I said, 
of the states that do not index the graduate income tax states, two of those 13 states that do not index are addressing the matter this year by moving to flat. So uh, the flat tax uh, revolution that um, Jonathan mentioned is addressing the problem of bracket creep. Um, indexing can also address that too. So I think we'll maybe see some more of that. But yeah, those are that's some things we're seeing around the country and the states and how it relates to you know the top issue of the day, which is the sky high inflation. Yeah. And, and it's a great way for states to have an influence on that. I mean, we know that the Federal Reserve ultimately controls inflation, right? Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, which is fueled by Congress's overspending and running up massive deficits. You know, the national debt increased by $6 trillion just over the last two years. So you've got a lot of fuel that they can put into the fire of what's going on. And so it's great to see that states can use what tools they have, uh, in this case, some the tax rep, uh, the flat tax revolution coming in to really bring down those costs. Um, and, and, and Patrick, there's one last thing there is, it was something you and I have talked a lot about, and we all have really, but it's also you got to focus on the spending side, right? If they, if we hadn't, if they hadn't made this restraint of spending in these states, would they have had as much to cut in taxes, right? And and, and they wouldn't. And is that what you've seen in some of these other states as well? Yeah, I would say absolutely. Uh, the states that have uh, ex- uh, exercised spending restraint have been the ones that have been able to provide this relief. So you know, the big one, you know, North Carolina being one of the states that has kept spending growth uh, roughly in line and below the rate of population growth plus inflation for the better part of the past decade. They were just able to enact another round of income tax relief as part of their last budget. So their rate went from 5.25 to 3.99 at the beginning of this year. It's going to go down, uh, excuse me, it went down to 4.99. It's going to be scheduled to go down to 3.99 in the beginning of uh, 2026. Some folks uh, there, since they're sitting on a sizable surplus, not just because of better than expected collections, but because of spending restraint, uh, they are now in a position where they can provide even some more relief. So there's talk about either both speeding up the drop down to 399, so it takes effect sooner than 2026. There's also been legislation already filed to move them down to a flat 2.5%, uh, which it seems to be Arizona is kind of leading uh, the charge to get to a flat 2.5. So that seems like a good stopping place before you get yes. to zero uh, is 2.5. So uh, they've already got legislation filed and they're, they're in a place where they can not only consider doing these things, but actually do them. So uh, yes, spending restraint the states that have done that have been uh, best positioned to provide their constituents with the necessary relief. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out on that. Definitely. Uh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, keep spending restraint lower taxes, keep regulations low or cut them if you can. That really allows for the productive private sector to flourish and grow and expand and create jobs and, and everything else, which helps to bring, you know, in, in, in economic terms, increases that supply curve so you can start to hold prices or pull prices down um, along with what the Federal Reserve's actions are doing. So that, that's great to hear that a lot of states are getting on board. Hopefully get more of them to zero, kind of like in Texas uh, where, I, where I'm at. Um, where you get a 0% personal income tax, but the lower that you get, I mean, that's allowing for more competition. Um, Caterpillar, uh, I think it was yesterday or on June 15th, so yesterday just said they're moving their headquarters to Texas. Um, That's going to be 54 of the Fortune 500 companies will have their headquarters in Texas. So when you lower taxes, keep them pretty low overall and have spending restraint, um, those are the kind of benefits that we can see. And so hopefully start seeing that across the entire country. So um, that's a great feedback. 
Well, in advance and to that end in terms of the importance of spending restraint and how revenue collections are so uh, unusual right now that no one really knows what real revenue uh, collections or rates of growth looks like. You know, that's why it is so important to keep spending in check. And while I, you know, with some of the surplus money, we've seen a lot of states that you mentioned plow that into permanent rate relief. We've seen others send it back in the form of rebates. I don't love rebates and the fact that I would rather see permanent or even temporary rate reduction instead of rebates. That said, one thing you can say about rebates is that it does prevent that excess revenue from going into a permanent increase in the state spending baseline. Yeah. So that is that is certainly uh, an, one of the benefits of rebates is that it prevents that surplus revenue from being baked into the baseline so that you have permanently escalated rev, uh, levels of state government spending. Uh, so that's certainly a positive of that and helps yeah. uh, prevent uh, excess spending. That said, would rather see it go into sure. a permanent or temporary rate relief. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, good point. All right, Michael, uh, over over to you now. Uh, what's been on your mind about the economy, what's happened across the states, and anything else you want to comment on about what's already uh, been discussed? Well, I mostly want to start by commenting on what's been discussed, because there's been a lot of great points made here. Um, from Jonathan, these are two really high-level lessons that we need to really uh, take to heart. One, supply matters. Two, deficits matter. So we were at the point, we were at the end we are at the tail end of an intellectual change where we started to think that deficits don't matter, and we started to think that supply-side policy is not necessarily important. What we did on the pandemic, uh, some of which is understandable, but obviously it went too far, is we said the only thing that matters is demand. Cut checks out, demand, demand, demand. And so, great, now we don't have supply. There are supply shortages from military components to baby food. and we have prices rising because we increased demand more quickly than supply could increase. So that's that's uh, how we get inflation. Yeah, the, the, demand the classic, artificially increased. The, the classic case of too much money chasing too few goods, right? Exactly. And then uh, related, of course, is that deficits matter. We thought that we could sort of run the MMT experiment uh, through the pandemic, and we did. And we found out that it's very inflationary. It's very... Uh, destructive and distortionary. And uh, Jonathan mentioned houses, uh, which, you know, if you've owned a home, it's felt great for the last two years. Uh, but the, the other side of this is that every time we have artificially low rates and artificially easy money, some asset bubble blows up, right? And so we did housing again. You know, we did housing again. Now, I don't know if it's, if it's necessarily going to pop, but uh, we did have an artificial increase in, in housing prices. Um, I want to reflect on, so I have to bring the gospel of the tax foundation on the inflationary issues by bringing up full expensing. And I think this is important for our international competitiveness. Just like we need to index brackets to inflation, just like we need to control spending so that you know, inflation, we don't, we don't get spending going beyond inflation. And just like we need to... Um, index the standard deduction to inflation like the federal government does, a lot of state governments do. It would be very good if we indexed the cost of capital to inflation by allowing full and immediate expensing for capital investments in the United States. I think that it's a good tax policy as such. I think it's a, I think it's a borderline necessary tax policy given that we want to be globally competitive and that we do need to reshore some critical supply chains to the United States. Full expensing is a way to do it. Uh, let me put a point on it. Full expensing is less urgent when we're running 2% inflation because 
you know, some big company like Caterpillar, like, you know, SpaceX, like Tesla makes a, a $2 billion investment in Texas. Now, Texas doesn't have an income tax, so Texas is not an issue, but the federal government does. And they want to recoup the cost of their $2 billion investment. Uh, depending on if it's structures or machinery and equipment, they're going to be deducting, they're going to be using that deduction over 20 to 40 years. At 2% inflation, that's not great. At 9% inflation, that's a disaster. They're not getting their cost of capital back. So we dramatically increased our cost of capital through inflation without allowing full, full expensing. We, as we're saying, we need to get some of our supply chains back into the country we are making it more expensive every point of inflation higher because companies are losing the cost of capital investment because they don't have full expensing. So how do we get rid of this problem? We just allow full expensing through the federal tax code. States should do the same thing. Patrick actually led in Tennessee taking the first step on this uh, for a state. And then how do we pay for full expensing and a lot of other things? Make the salt cap permanent. So what are two things that we need uh, in the United States? We need more internal competition and we need more external competition. If the salt cap is permanent, states, sorry, sorry, blue states, you now have to compete without a subsidy in the federal tax code. So if you New York has been a good run, you now have to compete on a level playing field where the tax code no longer sponsors your really high taxes. And we need to use that revenue. Now that, that brings in a trillion and a half to two, two trillion over 10 years. So it doesn't need to all go to full expensing. Full expensing is not that expensive. Uh, but you can deploy some of that revenue at the federal level to create permanent full expensing through the federal tax code, which is exactly what we need if we want to beat some of these international competitors. And frankly, if we just want to reshore some of these critical supply chains. Um, so that's kind of where I would start. I think there's a ton of really interesting stuff happening in the country and then internationally. And I think both are increasingly important because this era of great powers competition is something that none of us have lived through because the U.S. has just been dominant through our entire adulthoods. And this is a new factor that we're going to have to think about. Definitely, definitely. Well, you've left us with a lot of good things to think about there, Michael. And um, one of the things that you've kind of been leading the charge on this, and, and, and all of us have been working on this in some respect, is property taxes and the truth in taxation. I know there's a model legislation that Alec has, um, and you were working some, I think, with Kansas and some other states. What, what's that about? The truth in taxation is basically giving the homeowner and the taxpayer uh, transparency and a voice in the process of raising or not raising the homeowner's uh, tax bill. So kind of the classical model is if the local government wants to increase spending beyond what it was last year, uh, they need to send out a notice to homeowners saying, hey, um, we're looking to increase spending. So, you know, ipso facto, your property taxes are going to go up. And this is how much your property taxes are going to go up. This is what we want to do. This we want to use that money for. And so then I might say like, you know, where I live, we have water problems. Like we have, there's water shortage. Uh, over, over time, there will be a water shortage. So if they're going to increase my property tax for uh, some critical investment in our water infrastructure, I might say, okay, good idea, guys. I think that that makes sense. If they're going to increase my property tax, as might more likely be the case for more administrators in certain K-12 school systems or, or things like this, where there's already some degree of bloat, then I might show up at, at the monthly council meeting and say, hey, I don't think this is such a good idea. Um, so truth in tra taxation, the idea is to give extreme transparency to the individual homeowner at a homeowner property tax level on what changes in local spending will need. Of course, the local government does not need to go through any of this process if they're not going to raise taxes, right? If you're not going to raise taxes, then no worries. Um, however, if they are going to raise taxes, they got to let me know how much it's going up and why 
what they're using it for. And then and essentially, this is also a friendly invitation to the council meeting when they will discuss and act on this issue. So if, if in a friendly manner or a not friendly manner, I want to show up to weigh in, then I can do so. Awesome. And I know you've all been leading that charge. Jonathan, I don't know if you want to mention something about y'all's model legislation that y'all have on that. Yeah, no, I think Mike hit the points very well. And I, you know, it came to us a number of years ago from when we had Utah legislators who just said, you know, we've had this on the books since 1985, and it's been really an incredible factor for Utah's success. I mean, not only have we ranked Utah number one for economic competitiveness, for 15 years running, all 15 editions of rich states, poor states. Um, but, you know, they were the fastest growing state in America over the last decade, according to the census, as well as so many other uh, positive economic attributes to the state. And so as we unpack, you know, what is it that differentiates Utah, uh, really, that finds those virtuous you know, outcomes for what they've seen over the last decade? You know, it's pension reform, it's responsible budgeting, it's the flat tax that they enacted. Uh, but it's also things like property tax reform through this truth from taxation law that made them unique. And so when those Utah legislators came to ALEC a number of years ago, um, Dave Traubert and others were there and, and heard the presentation. And then you know, we came to Kansas and Dave and KPI were very helpful and really helping to lead the charge and really build on this campaign and created an incredible campaign to get to a lot of the points that Mike was talking about. Because you know with this assessment-driven property tax problem that's gone on, one of the biggest policy challenges across the United States over the last several years is that oftentimes voters and taxpayers will you know, take that righteous indignation, uh, being upset about their rising property taxes, and then go to the state capitol and talk to their legislator about it. But then the disconnect, of course, is the vast majority of property tax collections happen at the local level of government and are driven by local spending decisions. And so essentially, you know, what this does is it directs people's uh, really righteous anger at the issue and puts it at the right uh, source of the, the problem and the root cause of the issue. And it really all it asks for is basic honesty about what's going on with your property tax bill. Because if you got your uh, bill recently, in many cases, I mean, your local officials are telling you straight the face, with a straight face and saying, we held the line on property taxes this year and your bill went up by $500 or $1,000 more than last year, the average person's wondering, they're scratching their head, what in the world just happened to me? And of course, the difference in what was needed is the real transparency down to the household level, like Mike was talking about, but to see that it's an assessment-driven problem. In absence of something like truth and taxation, in many cases, no vote from a local elected official never ever needs to happen to collect that extra revenue. And so putting that real accountability on folks that are making those spending decisions and really causing that property tax bill to go up is something I think is, you know, in my years of following policy, this is a tough one to tackle, but I think that's the best solution that I've seen so far. Yeah, no, that's good. It's spending, 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 right? Spending, spending's the problem. Uh, the, the disease, taxes, high taxes, and debt, and everything else is a symptom. Um, Patrick, I don't know if you have something that, that you'd like to add on onto that. I'll just add that I think uh, Jonathan's right. I think we're going to see a heightened interest in the need for and demand for property tax relief or accountability measures like truth and taxation because we've seen massive property tax value increases in hot, particularly hot markets like Austin, where you're near Vance, and Raleigh, and Nashville, and Miami. Uh, so that's going to trigger some increases in property tax bills in the next year or so. So I think you're going to see. Hey, Patrick, just real quick, 48% is the average in appraisal increase around Austin. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that seemed not that high, but close to that high in places like Raleigh and Nashville. So I think that's going to, 
you're going to see a lot of pain when property tax bills get adjusted. And I think as a result of that, you're going to see increased sensitivity and then heightened demand for state action that imposes some safeguards or accountability measures like truth and taxation. And I'll just lastly say, aside from the rising property tax values, going back to you mentioned the real pro- this problem of spending, you know, even in states that have done a good job of keeping spending in check in line with or below population inflation, like your state, Texas, bans like North Carolina, Tennessee, Florida, uh, the ones that have done a good job on spending, the local governments in those states have not done a good job in spending. In fact, they've been quite profligate. So even in the well-run states, we've got a problem with poorly run, profligate local governments. So between that and rising property values, I am only seeing the demand for property tax uh, relief and protection measures, accountability measures. That's only going to increase in next year in 2023. So I expect to see a lot more activity on that front. Yeah, and we were just talking about this yesterday, Patrick, as you may have seen, we had Grover on the uh, the Alec live stream earlier this week, and we were talking about the idea of what would that look like in this, these scenarios that you're talking about, which is a real issue, even in red states, these kind of left-wing cities that are having this huge spending growth leading to the problems that we've all talked about with assessment increases, you know, maybe a, a Tabor-type tax and expenditure limitation at the local unit of government um, if they're not going to adopt truth and taxation or maybe there's more urgent needed you know uh, reforms then it would take their truth and taxation to take effect and really you know move the needle quickly enough in the case of Austin or some of these uh, progressive cities uh, that may be something that uh, state lawmakers are looking at increasingly because I mean I think the one trap that occasionally even people with the right intentions can fall into and it is throwing let's say, more state resources to buy down local property taxes and therefore driving up eventually income taxes or sales taxes at the state level to satiate the appetite for more spending at the local level. And so obviously that accountability for that those spending and taxing decisions needs to be on local officials and asking the states to come in and, in a way, bail out bad decisions at the local level is akin to all the things we've fought against of having the feds come in and bail out state budgets. People have operated uh, poorly for so many years. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think that's a great point. And I think that there's there, there are two separate issues here. There is a tax swap, so to speak, where um, you're, you know, there are a number of states that have this, like Texas has this, Nebraska has this, a lot of states have this, where uh, Texas doesn't have an income tax. And so they can have a sort of swap where they're buying down the school property tax but it's critical that, that that is a dollar for dollar buy down. Like every dollar the state puts in is a dollar less that, that the local government puts in. And so you're just kind of reorienting how you're doing taxes, um, given that, you know, over time, like we've moved away from the property tax on the whole, uh, from it being the only tax in many states to now it's, you know, it's just one of many taxes. So it's kind of a part of that evolution in one way. Um, I think there's also a strategic sort of piece there. I think Mitch Daniels might have been the first one who did it. He kind of did a tax swap in a way on property taxes. It helped unlock and scale school choice. So the more dependent your your school funding system is on the local property tax, in my opinion, the harder it is to move to school choice because it's really hard to take property tax dollars from my neighborhood to somewhere else. But if the, the program, if the state is more broadly funded, sorry, if the school system's more generally funded by the state, then I think it's easier to kind of voucherize those dollars, so to speak, or ESA those dollars that are coming down on high from the state rather than moving them across or between districts and everything like this. So I think that there's, uh, you know, if you ask me financially, what should you do to move towards school choice? I, I would kind of say, have the state be 
a more important funder of, of schools. But at the same time, like Jonathan was saying, I would do that by doing a uh, dollar for dollar buy down where the school the school's like, okay, we got an extra million from the state uh, and we're going to raise up a quarter million, you know, to, so we're still going up on the whole. Uh, so I think that that's one thing to be cautious about. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I think that a, a swap or a restructuring like that can make sense. A lot of states are looking at that, especially in the Midwest, because they were very dependent on property taxes over history. And if you want to move towards school choice, you probably have to move a little bit off property taxes. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of discussion right now in, in Texas about what to do with the property tax system. I mean, since we don't have a personal income tax, we have the franchise tax, which is basically a gross receipt style tax. It's a, it's a bad form of taxation um, that we need to get rid of <laughs> as quickly as possible. But there's not a lot of talk about it right across the state it's really the property tax being so burdensome the tax foundation ranks it the sixth most burdensome in the nation uh i know jonathan some of y'all's reports have it you know pretty low um and and some would say well hey you don't have an income tax so of course you have higher property taxes but the the issue is is that's not the case everywhere right if you look at um florida which doesn't have a personal income tax they rank 26 the most burdensome according to the tax foundation tennessee which doesn't have a personal income tax they rank 36 and so it goes back to the local spending uh, being the main problem. Um, we at the Tax Public Policy Foundation are about to release what we're calling our responsible local budgets. So we've had the conservative Texas budget that we published since 2014 now. Uh, and I think it was successful in getting the message out there, having a tangible maximum threshold based on population growth plus inflation. Um, that was actually put into state law in 2021. It doesn't start until the next biennium, so we're not currently using that, but next biennium it'll start. I think it's a it's a strong spending limit, um, a good uh, way for other states to look at, but, but we don't have it for the locals. And so what we're now trying to move on to is to say, look, we're going to do the same maximum threshold for the local governments based on population plus inflation. So we're going to look at the big cities, you know, like Austin, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, uh, Brownsville, down, down the Rio Grande Valley, uh, and then Lubbock, kind of spread it across the state and say, how are these state cities and counties doing? And what you might guess is that they're all spending well above population growth plus inflation which of course is driving up the property taxes, um, their sales taxes, and, and other things. And so we're, there's been some reforms here, House Bill 3 and Senate Bill 2 of 2019. Um, those help to start to slow the growth, but we're still looking at other ways to keep doing that. So this is a great part of that conversation. You know, with the last, you know, maybe 10 minutes that we have here together, I want to throw out an idea that I think we're facing, and it's going to be on a lot of the minds. We kind of hinted at this earlier, but is this idea of a recession, right? When you look at the first quarter, GDP was down 1.5%. The second quarter, the Atlanta Fed has what's called the GDP Now. That does an estimate of real time what the GDP for that quarter, real GDP number is going to be. Today, they updated it to 0%. So that would mean that in the first half, we have negative real GDP growth. We could have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, which is be defined as a recession. Now, the National Bureau of Economic Research, the NBER, they won't actually date the recession until probably months from now. But there, there's a good argument that says that we're, we're in a recession. Now, if you look at the top line numbers, though, you wouldn't think that. I mean, we've got a 3.6% unemployment rate. We created almost 400,000 jobs across the nation last month. But something I've been thinking about, I'd love to give y'all's thoughts and maybe some other things y'all are thinking. 
I've, I've called this um, the, the zombie economy, <laughs> right? Y'all have heard about zombie firms where they're just running over debt. They're basically running on debt. They're, they're um, not making a lot of profitability. You think about all the PPP loans of the last couple of years, all the, the, the handouts that were given, they were kind of propped up for a while. The low interest rates and the money creation, all of that was put in there. You know, how many of them are going to start to fail when interest rates keep going up? Just last month, ADP reported that 91,000 jobs were lost in small businesses. That would be the first shoe to drop from these zombie firms. And on the, on the flip side, the other side of the market, you, I think you have some of these zombie workers who are barely connected to the workforce or in and out of jobs right now. Maybe you're sitting at home, you have these li the, uh, zombie labor force. I'm, I'm working on an op-ed right now about all this, but it creates this zombie economy that's been propped up and changed the dynamics that's going on in the labor market and among firms. And I'm wondering how quickly that will start to implode as interest rates go up, less money is being circulating in the economy, and, and nobody has this hope. Maybe after the election that will change, um, but I think this will give a lot of fear and concern, maybe rightfully so, to a lot of the public and legislators and their staff. And, and I wonder, given what we talked about so far, what you think about that, but also where should, where should we be heading? Is, is it just doubling down on supply side economics and pro-growth policies? Or are there other ways that we should be thinking about that? Who, who would like to start? I would love to start. I do it. <laughs> okay, so uh, on a couple of your points, unemployment is low, true. Uh, we also have fewer people employed now than we had before the pandemic. And so we've seen this through actually our last three um, recessionary cycles, the 2000, the um, financial crisis in 07, 08. And then now um, it, it is taking, we're not having the whole workforce come back online, so to speak. Now, sometimes that's because people are aging out. Like if you were a nurse and you were 62 years old going into this pandemic, I mean, it, it's not crazy to retire, right? Like you have some risk, you're a year or two from retiring anyways, or something like this. Um, but what we're not seeing is um, good, healthy stability in our working force population, particularly kind of the prime working age, 20 to 25 to 54. And so, yes, uh, the unemployment rate's low. I think we've all heard Elon Musk make some really interesting comments on this. He's saying there are not enough people, right? We don't have enough population growth. How does that translate into the unemployment rate? You could have an unemployment rate that's staying kind of low for a long time, and it's because your kind of whole population is not growing fast enough. So just in order to replace the people who are, are retiring, um, you need to be you know, basically aging up everybody you can, so you're going to have this low unemployment rate. Uh, because the generations are not getting bigger at the rate they used to be getting bigger. So maybe we'd be in a healthier place with a larger population that has a slightly higher unemployment rate. So there'd be more overall production. Um, also on payroll jobs, we do, we still have fewer payroll jobs now than we did before the pandemic. So what does that look like? Uh, it could look, it, it looks a little bit like Illinois. And what I mean is Illinois would go into recession its, its employment and its payroll jobs would go down, and then it would never get back to the pre-recession levels before it went into the next recession. And so you can look back on this for Illinois. Illinois has fewer jobs now than it had in 1999, I'm pretty sure, because um, it keeps not actually coming back. Uh, people are leaving the state. That's part of it. Um, so I think that that is a part of what's happening. The unemployment rate is not necessarily the perfect indicator because we have to factor in that our population's not growing as fast as it did in the 70s, 80s, 90s, everything like that. Um, so 
I think that you have a point. I think we might be in recession. Whatever it is, it's not going you know particularly well. Inflation's out of control, so that's going to bite. Um, I think that housing costs are going way up because the interest that you got pay for a new house is getting higher and higher and higher right now. One point of warning I think that is worth making for the states is that the federal government artificially increased incomes and thereby consumption through the pandemic, which arguably could artificially increase state revenues in the short term. And I know that we're all talking about guarding against that. I think that's really important. Um, Using this opportunity to cut and reform state taxes is fantastic. We also have to be concerned that the federal government might be baiting a lot of people into bad decisions. Not that tax cutting is a bad decision, but they tend to do that. They tend to misallocate things here and there, and then people react in ways, and then over time it might not make the most sense. So I think it's really good that we're talking about cutting taxes in a way that's kind of using these metrics of spending and inflation and everything like that, and I think that that's how it should be done. Yep. Yeah, great points. Yeah, Mike, I, I mean, I second a lot of those, and you make really good point there on the demographic you know, changes with the baby boom generation, you know, that massive generation now hitting retirement or in many cases being kind of tipped into retirement early because of the pandemic and many people just not wanting to stick it out. And, you know, the horror stories around small businesses that hung it up during that uh, period because of the lockdowns and so many of the government mandates. Um, but, you know, I, I'm concentrating on what we're hearing from state legislators right now is we are seeing a flattening of revenue numbers in a lot of states, even growth states. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, big out migration states like New Jersey or New York or California, but, you know, places that should be doing fairly well because they still have good in-migration are economically competitive. So I do think there's that kind of thought of caution on the the minds of many state legislators. And I think, obviously, tax cuts should be pursued uh, regardless of the overall economic condition because it's the right thing to do and, of course, to make states more competitive. But I think, you know, seasoning that as well with really a hopefully return to (laughs) fiscal sanity in many cases of, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch from the federal government. We're learning that the, the hard way once again, even though all of us have been warning of that. We've seen it during the Obama years. These maintenance of effort strings and other problems that come with the federal dollars are rearing their ugly heads very quickly in many cases. Um, and also, I mean, this is a really good opportunity uh, instead of building new baseline spending right now, because right now the revenues are still strong and, and surplus dollars sitting in state capitals. Instead of using that to build baseline spending growth is, you know, look Looking for one-time ways to pay down debt, pay down pensions, pay down a lot of the things that are, uh, you know, haunting states on a liabilities perspective, uh, so you don't overextend yourself on the spending side. Because the good times certainly are not going to last forever on the revenue piece. We're already starting to see early signs of that when it comes to state treasuries, and so really balancing the mix of pro-growth supply-side tax cuts that are going to be so essential to help us get out of this conundrum that we're in, but matching that with real priority-based budgeting and really start to look for waste within state government again. Because unfortunately, with that, things is you know, flying high as they were with revenue in the last couple of sessions, I don't think there's been nearly enough looking under the hood to find ways to cut government spending and find waste and, and more efficiencies there. I want to respond quickly to two of his points there, uh, or maybe one. The MOEs, the federal intervention of the states, this has to stop. The federal government's debasing the currency because they can't pay for things. They're debasing the currency because they can't. They don't have enough money to pay for everything that they've already outlaid. We just saw a proposal come out from a bunch of senators on gun issues. It's not necessarily my issue, but there are two parts in there where they're going to fund state red flag law programs. Why? 19 states already have these programs. If states see this as a priority, they could do it on their own. 
exactly what we don't need is more federal intermingling of funds with states for programs that states can do on their own and do do on their own. Yep. Okay, and then of course strings attached. People worry about that over time. And then the community health program, it's in in the same package. So the feds are like, we're going to give out more money to these community health programs that broke our mental health system starting in the 1950s. They broke the system, and they're like, we're going to fund more of this. So it's more money going from the feds to the local governments. None of that makes sense. That stuff's all got to stop happening. It got to go the other way on that. Yeah. Totally. And, and, and that's something I think all states have had, got to worry about that y'all are, are both hitting on, but is make sure that those COVID funds don't go into the base budget. Because if they use that as the base budget next time, we're going to have huge increases that we certainly can't fund just out of GR in the future. It's going to be massive. The other big MOE is Medicaid. I mean, Texas hasn't expanded Medicaid, the overall population, but basically we've increased the number of people on, on Medicaid by 1 million. One million more people because they can't age out, they can't income out or anything else. And that's going to cost the state five billion more dollars. Um, I think the latest actually I saw was uh, 3.7. So it be, it's continuing to grow. It's probably going to be five billion by the time this biennium is over. It's a massive cost that the state didn't vote on. We didn't even expand Medicaid, yet we are because of the CARES Act MOE way back then. So it's a, a lot of problems. Patrick, let's say you. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, just first, uh, a couple of final thoughts uh, to touch on the demographic issue you all mentioned and the lack of labor. What uh, is a good hook for me to mention an idea that I always think is a good idea and something that I try to remind folks is still in existence is the Utah State Guest Worker Program uh, legislation hasn't taken effect because it requires a federal waiver that has not been granted, but it was originally passed in 2011 would allow Utah to set up its own state guest worker program. Um, and as since, as folks here know, the federal government has purview over immigration. That needs a federal waiver. Uh, President Obama never granted one. In 2016, uh, the Utah legislature and governor passed legislation to extend the deadline by which they could get a federal waiver. So it was scheduled to expire. They still had, didn't have the waiver, so they wanted to give themselves some more time. So they passed legislation giving themselves until 2027 to get a federal waiver. Would love to see Utah get that federal waiver and would love to see other states follow suit, not just because we need more labor, but because states have a better sense of what their labor needs and shortages are than the federal government does, uh, certainly. And we've also seen some incompetence at the federal level with the issuance of visas. And so all those factors combined, I think the idea of permitting state guest worker programs through a federal waiver is a great idea. We've got one out there pending. All we need is the waiver granted, which also reminds me of, um, you know, while it was a missed opportunity for both Presidents Obama and Trump did not grant that waiver for the Utah Guest Worker Program. It was also a huge missed opportunity to not index cap gains for inflation uh, last year when we had an administration, or two years ago when we had an administration with some staff who wanted to do that, but ultimately did not do that. Tremendous uh, missed opportunity that would have provided a great deal of relief uh, over at least the last two years. A lot of um, folks have seen uh, inflationary gains get taxed or poised to be taxed. So real missed opportunity. Hopefully when we have that chance again, we don't lose it. And then just lastly, to end on, you know, uh, the prospect of recession on the horizon uh, just underscores for me how important spending restraint is at the, at the state level. The states that uh, kept spending in line with or below population inflation have at the same time they've been able to cut taxes have been able to keep their rainy day funds heavy uh, healthy uh, and are well positioned so underscores that importance it also underscores to me uh, you know the value of looking to revenue triggers as a way to facilitate multi-year uh, tax rate reduction because you don't run into a problem say something outside of your control a recession or whatever hits state revenue collections tank. And that simply puts this next scheduled rate reduction on pause 
um, so that you don't end up in an untenable budget situation due to tax legislation that was passed years before uh, you know the recession uh, or other circumstances occurred. So this just underscores to me the uncertainty ahead. Underscores to me the importance of uh, you know conservative budgeting, but also the uh, the utility of revenue triggers um, as a way to facilitate uh, tax reform and tax rate reduction in a responsible way over a number of years. So that's my takeaway. No, that's great, Patrick. Um, we, we we're basically out of time, guys. But do you do you have any like one minute? Final words. Um, I think Patrick gave his already, but 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 Jonathan, what would be your final final words here? Well, final words are dangerous times ahead. The yeah. states need to continue to lead, and they are leading. And a lot of the because of the the great men and women who are Alec members and other good conservative state legislators out there. But also, you know, let's not forget some real institutional reforms like fiscal rules in Colorado, taxpayers' bill of rights in the state constitution. Colorado's turned blue, but guess what? Uh, taxpayers are getting a four hundred dollar rebate this year because of Tabor and also rainy day fund budget stabilization fund, preparing Colorado for the recession potentially. That's something that's a great idea. I think that states can continue to take a look at. Yep. And you'll get your ALEC model legislation that's out there too. So it's a good place there. Um, Michael, what about you? Uh, I think a point that came out of all of us that I want to crystallize, states need to step up. I'm not just saying on taxes. I'm saying on a lot of areas. And the federal government or perhaps the next government needs to empower that. So states were always where liberty was supposed to be protected. It's been mentioned here how local governments get out of control. They absolutely do. It's been mentioned how the feds get out of control. They absolutely do. The states created both the locals within their states and created the federal through the constitutional system. I know that's a long time ago, but the states were where liberty was supposed to be protected. I fully agree with Patrick on um, empowering states more on guest workers and even on immigration. There's a proposal to do that, too. Uh, The federal government is basically botching everything they touch. We have lawlessness on the border down here in Texas, but at the same time, we're not bringing in all the engineers and scientists that we absolutely ought to be bringing in, whether it's just to grow here or to be more competitive against foreign, foreign competitors. So the the feds are botching it. If you can empower states to do some of these uh, immigration factors or other factors in really intelligent ways to bring in that great talent they need, whether it's for SpaceX down on the border or whether it's for Caterpillar that's going to go into the Dallas, Texas area within Texas, let the states make these decisions because the feds just can't do it well. And I hope the next time we get a really competent administration, they're going to leverage the power and the competitiveness of the states to make some of these decisions really well. Totally agree. Uh, there's a lot to do, a lot to take in. Um, thank you all. Thank you all for being here today, Jonathan, Patrick, and Michael. Um, I'm always interested to hear what you're saying. And so it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, and I'll be sure to share this with everyone. We've got a lot to take on, uh, but we can do it, right? In the States, you're, I believe you're, y'all are all right. The States are the place to do this. Let's uh, make sure that we can have more opportunities um, to let people prosper. <laughs>